would you open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 2? And oh my goodness, was that ice storm unexpected last week. I'm like Dana. Tuesdays for years have been set aside for women's ministry. And I am a routine person, and I do not like it when my routine is assaulted like that one was, nor do I care for eyes. Oh, my goodness. I don't do well if I am cold or if I am wet. And if I am wet and cold, well, it's not a good thing. But anyways, today as we move in to Galatians chapter 2, Paul continues defending the gospel of grace. In fact, that's pretty much sums up what the letter to the churches in Galatia is all about. But from the text, we can see that not only was the gospel of salvation under attack, but Paul himself was. It is a subtle but sure way to undermine a message If you undermine the messenger, and that's what was going on. He had been branded as a renegade by the Judaizers who were teaching that salvation required not only the sacrifice of Christ, but the convert must also keep the Jewish law. And so this matter of legalism was such a a hurtful heartache for the Apostle Paul that he is writing this letter to remind all of us that we are saved by grace without any works of righteousness. Now, Galatians teaches us, beloved, that we are free in Christ. Praise God, we have been set free. And today's lesson is about how to live in the freedom that has been purchased for us through the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice at Calvary. It's so fascinating to me because I came to know Christ almost 42 years ago. And it's so fascinating to me because the the gift of God, salvation, is a free gift. But, beloved, it comes with great responsibility. And this is where many Christians fall down on the job. They think because Christ on the cross redeemed us, They assume he did, uh, that because he did for us what we could not do for ourselves, they begin to assume that the next phase called sanctification will be Christ doing it all on our behalf, and it's simply not the truth. Sanctification is about you and I growing in the grace of knowledge of Jesus Christ, becoming a student of the Word of God, learning how to rightly divide the truth so that we can live in it, so that we can operate in it. And beloved, this requires of us to become a student of the scripture, to learn the scripture, to spend time reading it, memorizing it, meditating on it, and walking in yieldedness to the Holy Spirit. And that does not happen automatically. It's available to every one of us, but beloved, it is not automatic. I was thinking yesterday, as I was beginning to notice my gray roots, uh, I was just thinking about the aging process. Now, I'm just going to tell you that I am 68. I don't want you out there guessing my age because you'd probably pin me somewhere older, and I don't want that happening. And you're probably thinking, I think she must be in her 80s, and she's holding up well. (laughs) I'm in my 60s and really not so much, but uh, uh, here's my point. Aging 
happens to us, there's precious little we can do to stop it. The best we can do is sort of shore it up as we go along, but it happens to us automatically. But spiritual maturity does not. Do you see where I'm going? Anybody studying in this with me? Spiritual maturity does not automatically happen. You and I must do the work in order to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. I was at a conference, and uh, before I was speaking, we, they had a dinner for all of us, and I was sitting at a table similar to what you're doing with about uh, eight or ten ladies with me, and the subject of age came up. And we were all discussing all of the issues of aging we were dealing with. Now, all of the women around the table identified themselves as being older than I am. I don't go around asking that kind of thing in case you're worried about that. They all said they were older than I am. And, and, and so one of the ladies said, Jean, you are not old yet. I'll tell you how you know that you have gotten old. And I said, so tell me. And she said, when you get in the shower... And you are not sure if you have taken your shower (laughs) or if you still need to. And I said, that sounds dreadful. What do you do? And she said, oh, honey, you feel of your washcloth that if it's wet, you get out. Craig and I were invited to a a Bible conference and there was a pastor named Charles Carter speaking at it. And he vows this story is the truth, not a preacher's story. But he said that he had a member of his church that was 103. And she had lived a long and godly life. She'd been put into the hospital and it looked like was in her final days. So he had paid a visit and her daughter was there with her. And so he was talking to her gently, whispering words of encouragement and affirmation and uh, to her and stroking her forehead and uh, said she was just so beautiful, arranged there on the pillows and her uh, daughter was on the other side of the bed. And finally, uh, Charles said to the woman, how can I pray for you? I'd like to pray for you. What do you want me to pray? And the woman said, pray that God will take me home soon. I'm ready. I want to go. And the daughter spoke up and said, oh, mama, I don't want to pray that prayer. And she said, honey, I know you're not ready for me to go, but your daddy has been gone for years. And if I don't hurry up and get there, he's going to think I died and went to hell. you love the sound of laughter? (laughs) Y'all, I could go on like this for hours, maybe days, because things happen to me, and I think they're so funny most of the time. Most of the time. Occasionally, it takes a little time for them to get funny to me, but anyways, I love to hear you laugh. Y'all, we are the only people that have the right to have joy in our lives. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Yes, praise God, praise God. And yet, so often, you and I get sucked in to the world situation, which is dreadful, and we lose our joy. Oh, 
Let's try to laugh more and enjoy the Lord even more than what we're doing right now. Well, let me talk with you, first of all, about what I called forever friends. Look with me in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I, that is Paul, went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along. I'm going to stop right there. As I study the life of Paul, I marvel at what God required of him in order for him to serve the Lord. Uh, we won't take time to turn to it, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul lists some of the things that have happened to him. And he says he was beaten, he was stoned, shipwrecked three times in constant danger from robbers and thieves that made travel very dangerous. He was often hungry and thirsty. He lived with the threat of death hanging over him. And on top of that, his greatest concern, despite all of that was how his people, his flock, his early converts, the early church, the churches that he'd been engaged in planting, those he was preaching and teaching to and sharing the gospel who had come to know Christ. He was greatly concerned for the churches that he had invested in. And so Paul had so much that was placed on him for the cause of the gospel. The pressure was so great. In fact, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, that Paul says that he and his team, they despaired almost of life. That is, they all but gave up. Life got so difficult and so hard. And so I've just got to tell you, my heart rejoices every time I read that God gave Paul co-laborers in the work of the ministry. I love it that God raised up men that could travel with and serve alongside Paul, who could encourage him, invest in him, and help him as he served the Lord God. Throughout our Christian journey, beloved, I have grown to appreciate my Christian friends as a prized possession. Craig and I gave our hearts and lives to the Lord Jesus in 1978. And our group of running buddies abandoned us overnight. I remember that we could not wait to share with them what had happened to us. And when we did, they let us know they wanted no part of it. They were not interested in Jesus, and they did not want to hear about the things of the Lord. And I'm telling you, they all, in a wholesale move, abandoned us overnight. And that left us, we were uh, 24 years old, expecting our first child. That left us in such a lonely place, especially me, because I love people, and I love to be uh, around people, and I like to talk and visit, and, and uh, suddenly I felt so very, very alone. But thankfully, that was short-lived because as we got involved and engaged in our church here at Bellevue Baptist, we were downtown at the time, as we were growing under the uh, ministry of Adrian Rogers, who was our previous pastor, as we were beginning uh, uh, to fall in, so in love with Jesus and his word, we were beginning to grow in the Lord. We joined a Sunday school, is what it was called back then, and beloved, we began to meet people who shared our zeal and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ and it showed us how shallow our formal relationships had been and how rich and satisfying it is to be friends with brothers and sisters in the Lord. I am telling you when I found out that I had a whole new family in Christ Jesus 
It was such glorious good news. I remember uh, Craig and I used to sit down uh, close to the front uh, in church because I'm very easily distracted. And uh, I just remember early on looking back behind me and thinking, all of these people are related to me in Jesus. A whole new family. Not only are we placed in the body of Christ, but the family of God. Beloved, we are not to be doing this as solo artists. We are to be part of a community. God has always, always encouraged community. And, beloved, to be able to find dear brothers and sisters who love the Lord Jesus Christ to spend time with. Uh, You may have lost friends uh, uh, if you are uh, uh, using those opportunities to share Christ with them. But your closest circle should be strong believers who can urge you on, who can encourage you, who can come alongside you and build you up, who can walk through and share the joys of this life, the joy of the journey, but can also be there when things fall apart as they are wont to do. So I love that God raised up men that could serve alongside with Paul. Throughout his ministry, he had faithful friends. One of them was Barnabas. Barnabas was the first one to acknowledge that Paul's conversion was genuine, and he is the one who took them to meet the skeptical disciples. You will remember that when his name was still Paul, it says in Acts chapter 9 that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Christ. He was throwing Christians in prison and seeing that they were uh, killed in some cases. And so when he was converted, you can imagine how skeptical the early church was about receiving him. And many thought that he was just scamming them, trying to get the names of other believers so that he could have them arrested. And yet Barnabas sensed in him the reality of a genuine conversion and he began to be one of his great cheerleaders. Barnabas name means son of encouragement and that is an appropriate moniker for this gifted and gracious exhorter. Paul was often on the receiving end of Barnabas' exhortation. And beloved, I've just got to tell you, one of the things I love about being engaged and involved in women's ministry is because of the exhorters and encouragers that God has put on the sidelines of my life through this ministry. Uh, On Sunday, Craig and I had just been in our life group, and we were headed down to the sanctuary uh, to go to the 11 o'clock service. And a young woman who's uh, with us on Wednesday night in Bible study She was in the hall, and when she saw me, she threw her arms open, and she said, Girlfriend, come here. She said, I haven't gotten to hug your neck since you've been back. And we had this moment, I just can't quite explain it, um, of such connectedness and kindred spirit. And she began to encourage me standing there, and then she looked over at my husband and said, and, and you're Mr. Stockdale, aren't you? And he said, yes, he was, but calling Craig. And uh, so <laughs> Craig looked at her, and he said, you are surely one of the exhorters in my wife's life to encourage her to press on. Oh, what a gift. What a gift. Beloved, we get to do that for each other. Oh, that we would learn to be like Barnabas and be a daughter of encouragement. Uh, it, there are those who have the spiritual gift of exhortation, but all of us can be quick to encourage. Beloved, we have the habit 
of looking at the negative and very often speak negative comments to our, uh, really to our family catch it the most. We often will treat uh, strangers better than we treat our own people, for heaven's sakes. We need to develop the gift of being an exhorter or an encouragement, uh, encourager like Barnabas. And then there was Titus. Titus was a Greek. He was one of Paul's most trusted and dependable co-labors. He refers to Titus in Titus 1.4 as my true child in a common faith. Now, most commentators believe that Paul most likely led Titus to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and he proved to be a very faithful, godly man. He was a Gentile. He was a Greek, and he therefore was uncircumcised. And so he would play a very pivotal part uh, in the next part of the chapter we'll be looking at. But Proverbs 18.25 says, There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And beloved, the Christian family of faith sticks closer than a brother. And while Jesus is the ultimate friend... Praise God, he has graced our lives with precious godly friendships, and they are priceless gifts, and I want to encourage you to treasure them. Beloved, find you a group of women that are walking with the Lord that can encourage you and invest in their friendship. The second thing I want you to see is what I call proof positive. Look now in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so the truth of the gospel would remain with us. But from those who were of high reputation... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectively worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectively worked for me also to the Gentiles. That is a mouthful. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, that is Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is what I call proof positive. God divinely revealed to Paul that he was to go to Jerusalem and meet there with the apostles and leaders of the church. And so he traveled there with Barnabas and with Titus. Now he submitted to them the message that he was preaching 
he was not going to them to have the message confirmed because God himself had already confirmed it. He'd gotten the message from the resurrected Lord that he was to preach and he was not going to be dissuaded. And while those men thought they were testing and quizzing Paul, Paul was really testing and quizzing them to see if indeed they were preaching the gospel of grace and indeed they were. And so they, uh, he brings with them uh, uh, he brings Titus to them, and Titus is an illustration of the very thing the Judaizers were attacking. Titus was a Gentile. He was a Greek, and he was uncircumcised, but the council in Jerusalem did not require him to be circumcised, validating the very thing that Paul was preaching and teaching. Beloved division is becoming a national pastime, I'm afraid to say. In every area of our lives, we see division. And sadly, it has infiltrated the body of Christ, the church of the United States, not any particular, uh, particular body, but the body in general has been attacked by those who love division and dissension. You know, there are some people who thrive on that, who just thrive on that. And I, I for one... I want everybody to play nicely. Anybody else with me on that? Could you just, just for a few hours, could you just come on, just come on. Uh, and so, uh, there, but there are those who love division and they love conflict and they love to be behind it to bring about divisiveness. And so what Paul is interested here is a unity of the spirit and a unity in the gospel message the gospel of grace and so um, this is proof positive that salvation was by grace through faith without the introduction of works of any kind it was the incredible gift of salvation that is offered to us on the basis of grace now I just want to remind you that circumcision for the Jews was a very serious issue it was an established covenant and custom that dated all the way back to the days of Abraham and the birth of the Jewish nation it was a symbolic act and a covenant sign that expressed obedience to God and set his people apart from the heathen nation most heathens did not uh, use uh, circumcision. More than any practice, the old life of sin, uh, it, it indicated, excuse me, cutting away the old life of sin and dedicating oneself to God. More than any other practice, circumcision separated God's people from every other tribe and nation and signified their individual and national alliance to the one true God. It, time, however, it came to be nothing more than a religious ritual and carried very little significance. So it's a little bit easy to understand why the Judaizers were so committed to the tenets of following the law, especially in the area of circumcision. I um, included this in our notes. It's from M. Anders out of his commentary, Galatians and Colossians, he said this, the Judaizers wanted to make Christian slaves by requiring them to observe the Old Testament laws, rules, and ceremonies, especially circumcision. To impose circumcision on Titus would be to deny that salvation was by faith alone and it would serve to confirm the law is the means of God's acceptance and it is not. And so... James and Peter and John recognized that God had called 
Paul to take the gospel message to the Gentiles just as he had called Peter to take the message to the Jews. And they extended the right hand of fellowship. That is, they confirmed that indeed Paul's message was absolutely accurate and they encouraged him in the Lord. So the last thing I want you to see as we're closing out this lesson is what I called courageous confrontation. Uh, look with me in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Now, don't you know that was something else? I think that the Apostle Paul is probably a type A personality, very strong, saw things black and white, uh, uh, no wiggle room uh, at all. And we all know about Peter. Peter was loud. He was a fisherman when Christ called him. He was uncouth. He was uneducated. He spoke before he thought. He was, did I say loud? He was loud, impulsive. He is my people. Any, anybody, <laughs> anybody else out there? All the sanguines in the room? Oh, yeah, there's, there we go. There's the sanguines. When um, I raised a sanguine, and when I would go to pick up uh, uh, Jason, our oldest one, in the nursery, he would have lined all the children up, and they'd be having a parade, and he'd be leading it. And uh, that's the way the sanguines are, and Peter was a sanguine. And, beloved, he acted impetuously. And so can you even imagine what the scene was like? I wish we had more details. To see Peter... And Paul going at it, oh, it must have been quite something. And he says, I posed him to his face. I think they were like nose to nose. That's what I'm thinking it was like. And he stood condemned for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Now, let me just remind you that the Orthodox Jews, they despise the Gentiles. They refer to them as dogs. A Jewish man, an Orthodox Jewish man, would not allow the shadow of a Gentile to fall on him. They were a despised people group. So when Christ begins to invite them into the kingdom, whosoever will may come, you can kind of understand how the Judaizers bowed their back and pushed back. Because up until that time... The Jews had been the chosen people. Now, they still are. But through Christ, the door was thrown wide open for everybody. The scripture says that Christ died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, in the Old Testament, Gentiles were converted. There were situations where they were. And so salvation has always been on the basis of faith. But a new covenant was enforced when Christ died and was raised again in three days. And so we can sort of understand how the Jews were confused about this particular issue. And so it says that when these men came from James, from Jerusalem, that Peter had been eating with the Gentiles. Now this was really unheard of 
except within the Christian community. And uh, when they came, Peter began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas, our brother of encouragement, even he was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jew, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified. But, verse 17, if... While seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in this body of flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. This was some confrontation. I've got to tell you that something that I just cannot stand our confrontations. I mean, I have to so get it from God. It's only happened a couple of times. <laughs> I, I have to get it from God that I'm supposed to speak to someone about any subject because it, it's really, it's, it, I'm not very good at it. I, I'm not very good at it. So I marvel at Paul and Peter and what Paul is telling Peter and Barnabas and all of those co-laborers with him and the new converts, the Gentile converts, is that the law was given to reveal that we're sinners in need of a Savior. But the law can reveal, but it cannot redeem. For redemption, we need a Savior. And Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection, has redeemed us from the law. He said, I am dead to it. I'm dead to it. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If there was another way that you and I could be saved apart from Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, then Christ, if there was another way, then Christ died in vain. The point is, there wasn't another way. And so God gave his darling, only begotten son that whoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. Oh, beloved, this is good news. This is good news. Not that you and I have to work to get salvation. 
We have to believe by faith and receive it. Now, this is the first time in the book of Galatians that Paul uses the word justified. And the word basically means to be made right in a right relationship with the Lord. And he says in verse 16, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh can be justified. I hate to keep hammering this, but beloved, you and I are saved by grace through faith and not through works of righteousness. You and I could not on our best day, in our best moment, while we were asleep maybe, do anything that would cause us to find favor with God. We are reconciled through Christ or not at all. And so Paul is teaching us that it is all about Jesus. <clears throat> Even though Peter, now this is one, to me, this is what I call a kiss from the king. Beloved, that definition of a kiss from a king is when God does something so extraordinary and so uh, unexpected just simply because he's a good good father and, and not because we deserve it just something falls into our lap that we know that we know that we know that was God saying I love you I love you I'm here for you I love you we call that a kiss from the king now to me it is a kiss from the king that Peter of all people stumbled at this point Peter had been walking with God for many years. Peter was full of the Holy Spirit. He was teaching and leading and preaching and bringing people to Christ. He was considered one of the leaders there in Jerusalem. This was a man of God. And yet he stumbled when he began to feel like people were going to judge him. He changed his behavior and went back to being a people pleaser. Don did a masterful job two weeks ago before the ice storm. And if you missed that message, you must go back and listen to it about how to overcome being a people pleaser. Peter fell into that trap, fell into that trap. And the reason I love this, I don't want you to think I'm soft on sin. I am not. But I love that God lets us know that failure is not final. Because then when I look at my own life, I realize failure is not final. And for a person who loves the Lord, I'm telling you, I am madly in love with Jesus Christ. But there are moments, there are days, there are times when I fall flat on my face. And I'm telling you, it makes me so angry at myself. It just undoes me. I'm thinking, I know better than that. I know better than that. I should have never done that. I thought I had overcome that habitual sin in my life, and I'm right back walking in those patterns of sin that were there before I came to know Christ. I know better. I have taught better. I have taught that truth, and I've just violated it. And I'm thinking to myself, I need to go back and listen to my own stuff. <laughs> Which would horrify me if you want to know the truth. I was asked to do a video that would last one minute for a church in Florida to promote a conference that I got to speak at a couple of weeks ago. And first of all, I had, they just asked me to do a little video on my iPad. So first of all, I had to find a place in my house that was clean enough 
Anybody with me on this? It took me a bit to find a spot where my real world was not showing up in the screen with me. And then it took about 22 tries. I could not get that. I, I just a one-minute video. That's all, that's all I was asked. I did it over and over and I finally got it. And I went to replay it, to uh, show it to Craig, and we were sitting on the front porch looking at it. And y'all, there was a, something white, a little speck in my hair. And I thought, well, if Craig doesn't notice it, I'm going to let it go. And don't you know, he said, baby, it's really good, but it seems to be a little something right there. So I don't like to listen to myself. I don't like to see myself. And on most weeks, I wonder, why do y'all even come? That's what, I, that's what I wonder. But here's Peter, who loved God, and he blows it. And he blows it on such an incredible point of salvation by grace. Paul goes on to say, you and I have been crucified with Christ so that we might be raised to walk in newness of life. Beloved, the Christian life is not an easy one, that's for certain. But God has made a way. God has made a way. Everything pertaining to life and godliness is ours in Jesus Christ. Oh, that we might learn how to live crucified, putting the flesh to death and living in the Spirit, walking in obedience, influencing others with the reality of Jesus Christ. Oh, praise God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I bless you and praise you. I thank you for the word today. I thank you that you have given us encouragement and instruction. I thank you that the word of God and the spirit of God resonates in us to teach us truth. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be so very mindful of how we are to live, how we are to walk in these days that others see the reality of Christ in us. We are crucified with Christ. But the life that we're living now in this body of flesh, we live by the power of the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Lord Jesus, may we operate in such a way that you receive all of the praise and all of the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.